0: So well, thanks so very much for uh, letting me speak today. My name is Father Sibley, I'm pastor here Lady of Wisdom. I recognize some faces, uh, not everyone, but y'all are very welcome uh, here at the Student Center on campus. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art Lord in heaven, God, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so as we heard a few moments ago, celibacy, uh, particularly here, celibacy of priests. In certain sense, I'm going to talk about celibacy in general. If you do have celibacy apparent for and pertaining to, some religious sisters, and we do have uh, parents of religious here joining us today, is a topic that is very challenging, very confusing, and can often be sort of very frustrating for people, uh, for a number of reasons, at least uh, for today in our modern world. One is that very clearly we live in a very eroticized culture. We see images of sex and sexuality everywhere, and in a certain sense. It's almost that if sexual pleasure is the greatest good that our culture can strive for. And so an individual, particularly sort of at the height of their reproductive age, is giving up marriage, is giving up that sexual pleasure, seems to be something totally insane. There's also, I think, a lack of a proper understanding of the nature of the priest or the priesthood. A lot of times, I think, for Catholics, they can fall in the trap of thinking the priest is just like a Protestant minister. You're just a preacher. That's all you really do. But instead, there's something a lot different. We believe the priest, through his ordination, there's this change to his very being. He becomes a sacred person set aside, consecrated, not a pure functionary, uh, as the world often sees ministers. And then, as Andrea said earlier, is that there's also that impact, particularly today, of the scandal starting back in 2002 and the reopening of the wound last year. And there's this idea that somehow celibacy plays a part in this. Of course, if you study the facts, that is completely ridiculous. It makes literally no sense. Uh, But we can get to that in the questions if you want to at the end. And so there's a push, and there has been a push for quite a while, and it seems to be even larger over the course of the past year or so, to get rid of this requirement, at least in the Latin church, for celibacy for their priest and allowed priests to be married. And of course, I think it's ironic. If this is just a problem, why isn't the same call for religious sisters to ha- not be celibate? Why is it that men are getting this and sisters are not? Why isn't there a call that this is a sexist thing? of course shows sort of the hypocrisy and the lack of a proper understanding of what celibacy, priesthood, and religious life is. What I want to do today is, in as brief amount of time as possible, to explain the main reasons for celibacy, particularly here priestly celibacy, and why it's more important now than ever. And hopefully in doing so, I'm going to help you see and understand celibacy that renouncing of marriage for the sake of the kingdom in a new and fresh way. So so let's begin by trying to understand what is celibacy. And going to scripture, Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 to 12, very simply, renunciation of marriage. Celibacy is the renunciation of marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Here, the kingdom of God. Now, it's not seeing marriage as bad. Somehow marriage and sexuality and the body is bad, not at all. In fact, we're seeing it as a good. So you're giving up something good for another, even greater good, and that is the service of the kingdom of God. So there's a young man who comes to me and says, Father, I want to be a priest, but eh, I'm not really in marriage. I'm not interested. And we would say, well, you don't have a vocation of the priesthood. Same thing for a young woman who's not interested in renouncing marriage. She's not going to have a vocation to the religious life. And so renouncing it for the sake of the kingdom. Yes, for the service of the kingdom, but ultimately for the greater glory of God and for heaven. It is serving the Lord with an undivided heart. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. And it's important, it's radical, particularly in a society today that is so secularized that doesn't believe in God. The young man or the young woman who renounces marriage and the exercise of his genital sexual functions for the sake of the kingdom is profound testimony that something greater than this world exists. And so it really is a powerful word in this world. So, so why celibacy? Why would one willingly renounce the good of marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And the first reason is this, and it's the simplest one. Because Jesus was celibate. pretty, pretty, Pretty clear, Jesus did not get married. He had no physical children. He did not date Mary Magdalene, contrary to what people think that's the case. He didn't. We have no evidence of that. So the priest is celibate to conform himself to Christ, who was celibate to share in his life and in his ministry the second reason is a more practical reason rooted in the 1 corinthians 7 verses 32 to 33. we do it because it frees us up to be able to serve the kingdom in a larger way saint paul in talking to the church in corinth says in that passage I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. And so, marriage is good, but your primary focus is to serve your spouse. Here, we're free to be able to serve. A much wider audience as it were. We don't have the same anxieties about having to pay the bills, about having to change diapers, about having to, to mow the lawn, and all those other things. We've got a lot of other anxieties, trust me, but it's different. We can really focus on the Lord. And the third one, and sort of ties back into what we've been saying about uh, serving the kingdom, is that marriage is what we call, an uh, I'm sorry, celibacy is what we call an eschatological sign from the greek word eschaton which basically means the the end of the world um so an eschatological sign is we are living on earth what life is going to be like after the resurrection or what life is like in heaven right now because jesus says in matthew chapter 22 verse 30 that in heaven Men and women are neither married nor are given in marriage. This is is something that really makes Catholics and Christians mad. You will not be married to your spouse in heaven. Of course, that may make some people very happy, but you're not going to be married. It's not going to happen. You'll know each other. You'll be very connected, but you're not going to be married. And so the priest, the religious sister, is living heaven on earth because we are not married. We're showing you what life is going to be like in heaven. But this is sort of the basic grounding of why celibacy exists, and I could get into a lot more explanation. But what I want to do is go in a slightly different direction, and it's something that I've noticed over the years comparing that state of life of celibacy, of renouncing marriage for the sake of the kingdom, and marriage. That whenever we describe celibacy, it's almost always described in a negative way. That you are giving up marriage. That you are making a sacrifice. That you're not going to have sex. That you're not going to be a mother and a father. And that's not bad, and it's certainly true. But how do we generally describe marriage? Marriage is this beautiful chance where you can give of yourself. It is a way to love in this beautiful, unique way you're going to be that sacrament of Christ's love for the church. It's something very, very beautiful. There's positive language that deals with love and gift. Of course, we know that you're going to give up a lot of things, and there's going to be a lot of sacrifice, but we generally describe it as this positive way to love, not, hey, everybody, get married. Look at all the things that you're going to give up and so what i want to do is propose that not just for the sake of advertisement for the sake of a better understanding of celibacy here particularly priestly celibacy that we might describe it in a more positive manner yes it's more attractive but i think it's also more accurate and so what i want to propose is that celibacy is a unique way, a powerful way, of loving others. Celibacy is a unique and powerful way of loving others in a chaste, celibate, even virginal way. Ultimately, the priest and the religious or the celibate is able to love as Christ loved, in a way that is unique and different from the way that married couples love each other. That they can participate in and reflect and show Christ's love in a way that is different than the eros and the very good and wonderful love that men and women share in marriage. Does this make sense? And I, I can explain it more, and I didn't have a lot of time to flesh all this out, And it's somewhat of a mystery because it's not generally the way that you hear celibacy talked about. Uh, And a lot of this is inspired by or thought of um, a man named Luigi Giussani, who founded this sort of movement of the church called Communion and Liberation. uh, And some of the stuff that I've read over here about from him over the years, dealing specifically with virginity, although virginity for him, I think, tackle celibacy as a whole, Uh, and I was very inspired in the earlier part of the summer by reading um, an essay by a priest of his sort of ardor, the Fraternity of St. Charles Borromeo, a Father Prosperi, And, and he makes this argument about the uniqueness of celibate or virginal love is that unique way of loving other people but saying that it is a way to not only love, but to see others as Jesus saw them. So so listen to this beautiful quote from this essay by Father Prosperi. How did Christ see and love people? How did he gaze upon the world? Christ saw everything, the flower, the bird, the Samaritan woman, as well as each of his disciples as a gift of the father it's coming to him as it were out of the bottomless mystery of the father better yet jesus saw his disciples as a gift of the father entrusted to his care as a gift to be cared for and to give his life for so beautiful and very sort of reminiscent of something that john paul ii said about how we need to recognize and how he as a priest recognized that certain people were given to him He was given the task to love them, to take care of them. And so the priests, or the religious people, are given to them to see in a unique way, to love as Christ loved, and ultimately, as we see, to love as the Father's love. Because we know from our theology that Christ is the image of the Father. He tells his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So when Christ gazes upon the other person, sees their dignity, sees them as gift. It's ultimately the gaze of the Father communicated through Christ. So when Christ looks on us, it is the Father looking on us, and in being captured in that gaze, that chaste love, looking at that very unique and that very real way, you know that you are uniquely loved, that your being is good that it's good that you exist. And so that's why I thought his little mention of the Samaritan woman was so important. You could bring in Mary Magdalene, you could bring in any other sinner in scripture. Imagine Christ looking on them with mercy. Jesus looking on Peter after he denied knowing him three times. That look of not judgmentalness, but of love. That it's okay, that you're good, the Father loves you that you are a son or you are a daughter. And so the celibate priest, in a very unique way, is conformed to Christ as another Christ, that he acts in the person of Jesus. So he's called to be that image of Christ's love, to love in that same way, and to reflect the love and the gaze of the Father. And so just as Christ images the Father and the priest images Christ, the priest images the Father. And that's the root of the fatherhood of the priest who loves as a spiritual father but with the very heart of God the Father. That love which is purifying, that love which establishes identities in other people that can transform them and lead them to know who they are in the light and love of the father and so prosperity continues by saying virginity but i'm going to substitute celibacy here is more about entering in a new way of seeing and loving the world the whole world than it is about renouncing sex and so i think it's so crucial that we can understand hey young man or young woman you are called or invited to love in a way that no one else can a way that really married couples cannot love to share in a unique way and i'm not saying that married couples don't share in the love of christ i'm not saying that at all they're not called to image the love of christ has for the church but this unique celibate chaste love is some way and a gift that the celibate takes as a positive thing more than just simply renouncing marriage as a purely practical function it's a way of loving and seeing the world. And for me this idea of the gaze of Christ and the gaze of the Father becomes so important tied back to sort of Giussani's very famous phrase in describing virginal or celibate love. He calls it possession in detachment. The, the celibate is called to possess in detachment. In fact, in a true sense, we're all called to possess in detachment. I mean, parents Your children don't belong to you. They belong to the Father. You have them, but you possess them in detachment. You don't cling to them. And so Christ and loving others possess them in detachment. And the priest, the celibate, yes, we have our parishioners. We have our children. We have the people we love and we work with, but we can't cling on to them. We can't hold on to them. And we possess them in detachment. And that's why I think the gaze, in a certain sense more than the embrace, is a better way of describing it. So if I'm looking at you with love, I possess you, I'm receiving you into my eyes, but I'm not holding on to you. You can leave my vision of my purview. I can close my eyes, I still have you, but I'm not clinging on to you. It is a pure look, it is a chaste look. It's realizing the other person is a gift without clinging, without controlling, without grasping. Seeing the other person as they are, not as an object, not as a thing, but communicating the love of the Father. This is some pretty mystical stuff, and I'm sure that if I had more time and I could do more research and give you more quotes to back this up, but this is ultimately what the priest and the religious sister is called to do. In a certain sense, we need religious sisters just as much in the world, if not more, than we need priests to look at uh, the world, because the world today is broken. It's really always been broken, and particularly in this area of sexuality, the world really is become shattered. I deal with it all the time. People who are victims of abuse, people who have been neglected, people who have been forgotten, people who don't understand their dignity. The look of the priest, The way that they can love them and possessing them in attachment of showing them the Father's love restores and redeems. It helps others understand their dignity when they are tempted by insecurity to doubt their value, their worth, or who they are as sons and daughters. One of my favorite quotes to sort of describe this is from a Catholic sort of writer and poet of the early part of the 20th century. He's a Frenchman named Leon Blois. And so sort of like a French poet. He's going to speak in language that tends to be very flowery and sort of ephemeral. But he says, every man who begets a free act projects his personality into the infinite. If he begets an impure act, he perhaps darkens thousands of hearts whom he does not know who are mysteriously linked to him, and who need this man to be pure as a traveler, dying of thirst, needs the gospel's draught of water. So you think of it, if I am impure to someone, I treat them as an object, I use them as a desire of my sexual pleasure, that's going to impact them. It changes them, particularly if it's abuse or rape or something like that. They're going to come and be convinced that they're not worth anything, and that they may treat others in that same way or that belief that they're no good may cause them to act out in ways that further degrades their dignity. And so a person who is broken, who maybe has been treated poorly, who others have always used as an object, who've been the victims of predators, needs an individual to look on them with purity and see their dignity, to see their value. Like the good Samaritan who saw the the, the man on the side of the road who was able to look on him with love and caring and compassion and restored him to his value and dignity. Priests and religious who are celibate are called to do this in a very unique way. If they get married, it doesn't mean they can't do it, but they can't do it in the same way. They can't participate in and channel that celibate love of Christ in the same way fathers are called to do it mothers are called to do it in their own way particularly towards their children to show them their value to show them their worth but there are a lot of other people out there who don't have mothers and fathers to do that and the priest or religious is able to do that in a very unique and spiritual way and i could tell you in my now 19 years as a priest More than anything I've ever said or wisdom I've ever given, which is not very much, to be honest with you, it's the way that I've seen that I can look at another person and love them and show them mercy and show them the compassion of Christ that restores their dignity, that helps them understand who they are. That's where the the real change comes, in the loving and the seeing, not so much in the saying or the doing. And even more so in realizing how broken our world is in the realm of sexuality, we realize that there are a lot of people who maybe wanted to get married, who wanted to have children, but for whatever reason can't. They're struggling with same-sex attraction. They're victims of abuse. They're handicapped. The person who chooses celibacy not only can look on them with love, but actually comes to be in solidarity with them. Solidarity means that I am choosing to live as you live, to be one with you in your suffering. I may not be you, but I can be connected to you. And I learned this from uh, the recently deceased Jean Vanier, who's the founder of the Warsh Communities. You don't know this much in the United States, they're big in Canada, but he started uh, a number of decades ago for mentally disabled persons, bringing them together to live in community. And so they'd often have priests or religious who would help, but they'd also have lay people, volunteers, who would commit to celibacy in order to serve them. So this is actually Vanier writing in his book on marriage, talking about this. So he says, what is specific in L'Arche, which means the Ark, like the Ark of the Covenant, is that the celibacy of the assistants springs frequently from their covenant with those who have a mental handicap. Many of the latter cannot get married. Their celibacy is enforced. The call of Jesus to celibacy from some assistance is thus linked to this covenant with those in distress and in pain. Their celibacy springs from the love that binds them together in the heart of Christ. So just as Christ's incarnation is a sort of solidarity with all of us and our humanity, the priest of the religious who renounces marriage for the sake of the kingdom who chooses to love in that positive way is in solidarity with a lot of people in our society and culture who are forgotten, who are on the peripheries, and who are disenfranchised. And we can say, yes, I love you, but guess what? I understand what you're going through. I understand what you're going through. I'm there with you, and are able to walk and journey with them in a way that can be very redemptive. Now, this is all nice, and it sounds wonderful, Maybe your hearts are all aflame. Maybe some of you are like, maybe I don't want to do celibacy. Maybe not. But the truth is, uh, the call to celibacy is not easy. It is ultimately a sacrifice. It's a participation of the cross of Christ. There's no two ways around it. Sometimes it can be very, very difficult. Sometimes it's actually kind of nice. Like when you have a bunch of people over, and their kids are screaming and yelling, and I'm out of here, see you all later, I'm going to be by myself and read a book tonight, you know, no, I made a promise, Poverty, Chastity, Obedience, and Never Changing a Diaper, that's really good, it's a vow, but you do need a special grace to live it out, and Jesus does indeed say that, that you can't live it out unless that grace is given to you. But, you know, and this is sort of very, very funny, as hard as it is, I remember this man came up to me, and this is sort of a story that you hear amongst priests and seminarians, Father, I thought about being a priest, but I said, man, there's no way I can be celibate. And then I got married, and I realized I could. <laughs> because this idea that marriage is going to be nothing but fun all the time is totally false and unrealistic. It takes you a couple of years to realize that. That's when you come talk to Father, and I say, like, oh, dude. Oh, oh, Day. this is reality wake up you should listen to me before so it's not in fact really the truth is marriage is probably much harder than celibacy and much harder than priesthood and that's, that's why there's a higher divorce rate I mean think of this 40 to 50% of all marriages even Catholics and divorce for priests and religious after they make their final vows which would be like their marriage I think it's probably less than 5% who leave it's very very small Priests and religious are happy. They don't feel trapped. And if they did, there'd be 50% of them leaving. That simply doesn't happen. It's something that we need to think about that we often forget. But in order to be able to do this, to really live it out, yeah, you need prayer, you need the grace of the sacrament, but you need good formation. And that's what's so good now, is seminaries are really trying to provide that, just as married couples, to live out their sacrament, need good formation, priests need it too. No priest wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to go break my, my promise of celibacy today. I'm going to go commit adultery or sleep with some woman. No, it starts here. It starts in the heart. With the loneliness, with the wounds, with the emptiness, the brokenness that quite often they're not aware of. The priest is busy, caught up with stuff. They start feeling this, and they're not aware of it. They don't talk to anyone about it. And so it leads them down that path to acting out, destroying their vocation, and quite often the vocation of other people. And, and so the priest can't say, well, I don't want that to happen. He needs to be formed at a young age and continue to be very aware of his heart. Just as married couples need to do the same thing. No a married man or woman wakes up and says, I'm going to commit adultery, it is usual, a gradual process. They need to be aware of their states of their own heart, and what their life is going through. But neither the married couple nor the priest religious can say, oh, I'm too scared of my weakness or of falling, so I'm going to shut off. I'm going to quit loving other people. I'm going to quit being vulnerable. I'm going to quit taking those risks. It's, it's not possible. We need that love. We need that witness both in the sacrament of marriage but also that call to chaste, celibate, and virginal love. And so this is where I sort of put it in your, your hands or make the challenge to you as parents and as lay people. Priests and religious, your children and the children of others need support. Prayer, of course, sacrifice, it's so important. As Father Bordelon, what are the do's the don'ts in supporting your child as a priest? But we've got to realize there's a reciprocity here that priests are there to serve the lay people and to support them and their marriages and their holiness, but you're there to support us too. We can't do it without each other, particularly in the situation that we find ourselves in after the scandal, so many people tend to be suspicious of priests. If the lay people are all suspicious of their pastor, then guess what, he's gonna feel really alienated. He's gonna feel really unloved and wall himself off. I don't know what it looks like, but there needs to be this reciprocity, this mutual vulnerability and support, whether it be supporting priests in small groups, whether it be more dialogue and communication, pray together, or just telling Father, hey, you're doing a great job, and him saying, hey, I'm really thankful for y'all. I don't know what it looks like, but we need to really bond together. Um, This pitting of laity versus priests is not going to get us anywhere. Anywhere, and the more people do this—that we need to be lay people, we need to do this, we need to do that—it's great. But if you're against the priests and the bishops, it's not going to work together because we're all part of the one body of Christ. And so, I really think that you, as parents of seminarians or, in, or as priests, are in a unique position to some more support and promote priests and that vocation to celibacy. Uh, Now, why this is, in my experience, it is much easier for parents of priests to support their sons in their vocations than daughters of parents of daughters. Now there, like we have some parents of a daughter who do a fantastic job of supporting their daughter, but as they'll know, that's not the case with all of them. And maybe it's, expect the girl to have a child and they can be grandparents, I don't know what it is. But we all need to be supportive of our children's decision and it's something I talked about before and I'm insisting upon you do not own your children they do not belong to you your children are not saying hey I want to go be a drug addict or a pimp or something they want to be priests they want to be religious they want to serve and love and for parents to be the ones that block that or try to stop that either directly or through passive-aggressive garbage gets us nowhere gets nowhere. Allow your child to follow. Pray for them and support them and know that you are going to have, if they become priests or religious, more children than you could possibly imagine. Spiritual children. The Lord will bless you in a very unique way. So I'm not here to remonstrate or to condemn. Most time, parents are very, very supportive. If they're not, they often don't understand or it comes as a result of their own personal insecurity or lack of faith. Well, let's, let's work on that. Let's talk to somebody. Let's seek the counseling or the therapy or the spiritual direction we need so that we can all work together. The church needs, the world needs that witness of pure, chaste, celibate love now more than ever. And you are blessed if God is chosen in one of your sons or your daughters, to participate in that mission. And they are going to do a tremendous amount of good, of healing hearts, of redeeming and restoring and helping people in our world know their identities as sons and daughters of the Father.